Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Thanks as always, goes to our brilliant Patreon supporters. We simply wouldn't be able to keep doing uh, the Book Shambles podcast or the Science Shambles podcast or live streams or documentaries or blogs or anything else that happens uh, at the Cosmic Shambles Network without your support, so we are immensely grateful for that. Most of the other admin I'd usually tell you, uh, Robin took care of in the intro to this week's episode, so we can crack on pretty much straight away. Although I would point out that uh, we recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago, and right before we started recording, uh, the adapter for Josie's mic just died, just stopped detecting the microphone. So rather than have to try and reschedule and send out new cables and stuff within the day, we just got on with it. So Josie's audio is not as crisp as it usually is. So if you're wondering why that is on this particular episode, that's why. Everything will be restored to normal next week. So without further ado, let's get on to this week's episode. This is Robin and Josie talking to the nature writer and ecologist, Hugh Warwick. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, today, well, today there's going to be a lot of talk about nature. I would just tell you a couple of things beforehand. One is just to quickly mention that on the 12th of December, we're doing a 24-hour version of uh, the Nine Lessons of Carols for Curious People that we normally do as a live theatre event, but will there might be some element of kind of, of, of theatricality, but overall it's going to be available to anyone online. And we've so far got Helen Sharman and Brian Cox and Chris Hadfield, Sophie Ellis-Bexter. Uh, I think Josie Long's going to be there too. Um, and uh, so, and there's loads more people who've been announced. Go see the cosmicshambles.com website. And the other thing, I know people don't like us saying this, but we're going to do it very, very quickly uh, because we don't have any live theatre, any work work anymore, which was our kind of, you know, bread and butter. Uh, we we are having doing a little bit of a kind of drive in terms of the funding for uh, our shambles shows. And uh, so if you can support us via Patreon, that is absolutely fantastic. We Approximately um, 1% of people who listen or watch our shows uh, support us. We would love to get that up to five percent of people who listen. If you know, if you are someone listening and you are able to, if you're not, we're always going to try and put out as much stuff as possible for free as well. Uh, we want to do that, but if you are able to support us via Patreon, now is the time to do it. And that is enough of that. And now, time to someone actually complained. You know, this is we got a letter of complaint saying, uh, "Oh, I've noticed people mention you mention more about uh, getting some kind of finance for the show now." And uh, what I would like to say is that took under a minute. And if you really found that difficult i can't imagine you've ever listened to any other podcast no, ever we go don't for have adverts. 10, 15 minutes yeah we don't have adverts we don't have adverts where you're saying well and i'll tell you what this reminds me of using a sieve now when i'm using a sieve for like 20 minutes we don't have adverts we do have a patreon because we exist in the modern world and i understand that it is a weird and difficult time and we will always, always make free content and we will always, always be thrilled to have people listening to our stuff. But at the same time, podcast, at the moment, people are making slight appeals to see if there are people who can support the podcast and if there aren't, you know, that is how it is. It's all right. Yeah. I can't wait, though, the Robert Dias money that's going to come pouring in. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Robert, I was just listening to, uh, yeah, there's a woman who, my God, I've never heard. It's the voice of Sibs. It's the bloody <laughs> voice of Sibs. People for a hundred years. The holy grail of Siv talking. Literal, um, literal holy grail. Now, can I just say, by the way, that uh, this morning I started off, I uh, just thought I'd whisk up some eggs. And I've previously been using a fork, but I actually bought a small handheld whisk. And I, I'll tell you what, it really made a, an like absolutely smash. Likely. I've got the voice of whisks. I've got the voice of whisks. Listen uh, to this. We are whisks and sieves. So anyway, thank you very much to our sponsors, whisks and sieves. And uh, today our guest is... Yes, what um, I would say is always remember we're sensitive people in difficult times and all of us like everyone listening it's weird and frightening and if some of us are worrying and we're going oh we're setting up a patreon please take it you know in the spirit that it is that it's a confusing and difficult time and we're trying our hardest to work out how to keep making these shows that's what we do and we understand that's a difficult and sensitive time for everyone now let's have our nice show please I would say nearly everyone. There's a little <laughs> list I'm making. Um, oh, there are I, I, very, very wealthy people who aren't having a difficult time, but they're <laughs> probably not listening to the show, sadly. So We're all in it together. Do you mean this jacuzzi? I think it's only three of us in this beautiful luxury jacuzzi made from illegal ivory. I think <laughs> you're right. I thought we were all in the ivory line jacuzzi, but we're not. Um, this is Our guest today is someone that I love talking to, and he is the kind of person that if you are going for a walk and suddenly on a footpath, you see a gliss gliss and you think, oh, that gliss gliss looks like it might be in peril. Who should I ring to find out whether I should aid the gliss gliss? You ring up this person and they will very quickly tell you the nearest uh, animal uh, shelter. And they will also tell you to wear gardening gloves because even a uh, slightly damaged or concussed gliss gliss still has sharp teeth and will bite. That's what happened to me anyway. On, uh, I think it was on Tuesday that I rang our guest Hugh Warwick because I was I was go going for a walk and there was a glissless that I think had fallen out of a tree. It was very very still glissless. If you don't know, edible dormouse is also what it's known as, but please don't. Edible and why is it known as an edible dormouse? A human being people used it? to eat them. Oh, I tell you Romans. It's the Romans. It's the Romans, and they had entire things called glissarium. These are the, the sort of containers they used to keep these these lovely uh, fat little dormice in before before cooking them up. I just love the idea that you've got this arboreal mammal falling out of a tree. I was doing um, I was chatting to to a guy who'd, who'd been releasing beavers onto his land. Yeah. And he was, uh, I'm, I'm going to write a book about beavers. Uh, and it was, um, and it was just, it was just the idea that one of his beavers, which he'd released onto his land. Millions of years of evolution have gone into this fantastic creature with the big nori teeth that chopped down trees. And it, and it had managed to kill itself by chopping a tree down so it landed on itself. And I just think, oh, come on, it's just, yeah, you don't, yeah. Anyway, you, you want these arboreal animals not to topple out in front of comedians on paths in Hertfordshire. Well, I think the good news is uh, because I went back with my shoebox and everything and uh, then the glistis had, had a level of chutzpah, which I felt was enough for it not to be taken off to Rickmansworth. I, I thought, if anything, Rickmansworth might place it in greater jeopardy, not because of the nature of Rickmansworth, but it looked like it had, it was probably a bit concussed. It's been on the path and then it gone, I'm all right now. So it was, uh, but look at the, it's interesting because I'd not realised what, because uh, when I said to my sister, oh, there's a gliss gliss in trouble, she went, just leave it because it turns out it's been eating her apples. So uh, not happy with the gliss gliss. But it's a gliss gliss. Have you looked them up yet? You'll love no, Gliss Gliss. I, I can't go on either screen to do some secret Googling. So I need your information. I need you to visually describe the Gliss Gliss. Are we talking a hand size, a finger size? 
It's, you're, it's a, you're looking. It's a large, large. It's like the sort of size of a water volley sort of thing. Big, bigger than a mouse. Um, and, and but with cute, chubby cheeks. Big as a rat. Well, yeah. No, between rat and I would say it's a, it would be about the size of of your daughter's hand. The the size of your daughter's <laughs> hand is at the moment is roughly what, what size it is. Uh, as you, as she said, lovely little cheeks, and then a kind of like a a, a very combed small squirrel's Ooh. tail as well. Very wow. neat. Wow. So can I say? This is so wonderful because I thought I was vaguely aware of all the mammals in the United Kingdom. I was like, I've got voles on the go. I've got dormice on the go. I've got, you know, I'm aware of shrews. I have to this day never heard the words. Words, gliss, gliss, word, gliss, gliss, word, gliss repeated. What a thrill to know that there's this squirrely mammal that lives in a tree. Come on. And there's okay. a, and often in, in loft spaces and stuff like that as well. The oh, stuff yeah, glyphs you, you hear. in the loft. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, when you're in Glasgow, if they've moved up that far, you never know, you might have your, <laughs> your, your, your glyphs. Um, so, Hugh, your, um, your, your latest book is, uh, again, Hedgehogs. It's a lovely little book, though. It's this beautiful, um, just lots of wonderful pictures and anecdotes and stories and and it is one of those things which anyone with an interest in nature can kind of just go oh yeah that that's a nice book to have and this is first of all as someone who's written longer books about hedgehogs how on earth do you refine the amount of hedgehog history and natural history that you tell uh, in this particular story well, it's all to, it's, it's a bit like whiskey, really. Um, and it's that process of distillation, which, which obviously you've been having to do at the moment. You're writing a book. You have too many words. My first book, which was A Prickly Affair, um, I, I'd never written a book before. I wasn't going to write a book. I mean, I actually do lectures on creative writing now. Uh, I, I sort of call them the accidental author because it was never my intention to. It's just that I thought maybe as I, I live in East Oxford and, and you, you can't walk anywhere without bumping into another author. And they just they're just crawling all over the place uh, so it was just one of those things i thought i ought to try it and then um so i started writing it and i wrote ninety thousand words so i was quite pleased with them and uh, and then the editor at penguin who who was kind of quite terrifying um just said well yes you've got to go and kill your babies now and so i, I had to 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 cull twenty thousand words uh, uh from that so that was really hard uh then- so prickly affairs only seventy thousand words yeah Oh shit! My one's one hundred fifty thousand words. <laughs> that's way too big, isn't it? That's that's a biography of Stalin. Oh no, I've got a longer month than I thought ahead of me. Sometimes it depends. I mean, I, I'm I'm looking at um my my audience. My audience. I, I used to work at the Natural History Unit on on Radio Four, and um we I'd sort of say, well, what do you make the programs for? Who do you make them for? Is it like sort of members of the Wildlife Trust? And they said, no, we're aiming at an interested eleven year old. And I was like, well, that's kind of a bit ridiculous. Surely, you know, we've got Melvin Bragg uh, muttering on about um, uh, deities and all sorts of things that he was today. Uh, but it was, it, it, no, he said, the thing is, most people are listening to Radio 4 while they're doing something else. And so if you pitch it for an interested 11-year-old who's actually paying full attention, then you're going to get the people who are driving, cooking, doing the dishes, etc. And, um, and And it will work. So that's kind of where... A prickly fair's at. I mean, a prickly fair is at. It's. I, uh, I wanted to tell you a, a very small thing that's barely relevant at all. But at the weekend, I was walking with my daughter in the woods, and she said to me, "Mummy, mummy, a hedgehog, a hedgehog." I didn't even. We sort of had hedgehog chats, seeing them on television and stuff, but I didn't realise. And I was so thrilled because I have never seen a hedgehog in the wild, and I was like, "Wow!" Ran over. It was a sweet chestnut. 
Um, it was a, it was a sad moment, but it was also I was like, I mean, it does look like a hedgehog. There's not much to be done. A very small hedgehog. I mean, I've had this um, when I was out looking for hedgehogs up in Orkney. I was researching the um, impact of hedgehogs on ground nesting birds. And this island, North Ronaldsey, very small, so five miles long and a mile wide. And I spent my I spent uh, many months up there uh, counting hedgehogs. And um, you'd, you'd be walking along beside a field uh, and, and then you'd see you'd see a hedgehog moving in the field in the beam of your torch. And so you would leap over the fence and charge into the field to grab the hedgehog to wear it to collect the data point. And, and all it is is the fact that as your torch has moved, the parallax, all that sort of stuff, the cow pat has moved. It's a picture when you've just gone over there, leapt over the fence, risking life and limb uh, uh, in the process of, um, uh, yes, trying to trying to paint marks onto the back of a turd. <laughs> well, this is um, well, because one, one I remember a while ago, this is uh, you, you were telling me about the first time that you really felt the kind of interspecies connection with uh, a hedgehog when you were you were bathing once a week and living in a caravan and you had that interspecies connection. I think we had grown to smell alike. Um, no, this is down in Devon, radio tracking hedgehogs down there. If you've never done it before, radio tracking hedgehogs is really one of those special things to do because to, to the radio tracking device on the back of the hedgehog is like a small little battery powered block with a whip aerial and then you've got a big tv aerial style thing which you, you're following trying to when, when the signal is loudest uh, um beep 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 you know, you're pointing your, your aerial in the right direction but what it does when you get close enough for a brief moment it looks like you've got a radio controlled hedgehog um so it is, it is it is a wonderful thing but no there was a night out um it was it was in nigel it was, this is before I discovered that uh, one of the sort of great hedgehog ecologists uh, in the world is, is, is a guy called Nigel. Um, so it has made for embarrassing moments in conferences. But there was a night out with Nigel and um, I'd finished doing my round. It was like sort of yeah, we're coming towards dawn, about four o'clock in the morning. And I'm, I'm stepping outside of my caravan to do my teeth. And, and Nigel was just sort of outside the caravan looking up at me. And so I, just, I left all the radio tracking gear behind and just followed him as he pootled along uh, the lane, revealing to me why so many hedgehogs were getting killed on, well, two of them, but I mean, it's relatively a, a lot, killed on this narrow lane is because he walked along the tarmac, uh, feeding off tiny slugs in the, um, in the verge. Um, but, but there was a moment when he stopped and he turned around and he looked at me. And, and yes, I mean, with your uh, very empirical hat on, uh, um, uh, Robin, this, is, this may be troublesome, but... It was it was a very special moment because he looked at me and he noticed me and then he carried on doing his thing. And it was just in that moment of connection that really you begin to shift that balance between sort of liking stuff to loving it. But I also used it as that sort of way of trying to encourage people to find a way to make connections with nature. You've got to find your way in. The hedgehog is great for me. I recommend toads. I've tamed a robin to come to my hand and, and going around sniffing um, um, otter shit is a wonderful way of, mm. of finding points of connection too. So, uh, but it's, it, each person will find their own way and it's getting something closer uh, than just sort of throwing bread at, or frozen peas at ducks in the park. Yeah, I guess Hang on, <laughs> should you feed a duck a pea? Frozen peas, yeah, it's very good for them. It's a bit. It's a bit like you, know, you can give them sage and onion as well. Then they get ready stuffed. Um, no, don't do that. It was. Um, it. It's slightly complicated. It, it. Bread is not a great food stuff. Oh, we all listen. We're all up to date with the fact that. Oh, we you are. Good, good, good. Bread to ducks. Don't worry about that. We know the bread is harmful for the ducks. But a pea. We're giving a duck a pea 
now, are we? Yeah, that seems that was a convenient thing to carry around with you. Uh, um, and it is it, bits of grain, bits of bits of muesli, probably. I don't know. Um, but anyway, the point carefully, Josie. First of all, just feed peas to the horse chestnuts that you're kind of trying to tame, <laughs> and then just build it up from there. Okay. What I like is both of you have obviously known about duck peas for years. You're like, yeah, duck peas. For me, it's an adjustment. Okay, it's that is good. Today is a big day. <laughs> it's a big day. I'm learning about nature. <laughs> I I just got some lovely cards um, uh, that are from Kew Gardens that are 30 uh, common trees in the United Kingdom with the leaf, the uh, trunk, the, uh, yeah. the, you know, and um, what a joy that was. I didn't even know, I did, had no idea about the asper. Asper. These trees that, I, I, that are very common that I'd always just been like, mm, I guess it's probably an elm. I, the elm is not even on the list. Poor old elm. Used to be number one. Now it's in the doldrums. That's weird, so, isn't it, that you suddenly realise how there's a certain number of trees where you can go, for people like Josie and me, not not for you, Hugh, where you kind of go, uh, is it an oak or a pine? Is it an <laughs> oak or a pine? And a then you go, Yeah, or a birch, yeah. <laughs> but you see, I tell you, I'm a bit of a fraud when it comes to this because my I'm a bit... I'm a bit of a hedgehog around hedgehogs, and, and we, we may get on to that whole uh, um, idea from Isaiah Berlin later. But the, um, the the whole thing of being an ecologist, people do assume I have this this great font of knowledge. And yes. it's a bit like me with with helping uh, my, my wife with with her computer. Um, I know a little bit more than she does. I mean, I, I'm not. In, so it just appears when the question comes, um, I can say with authority, have you tried turning it off um, back on again? And, and it sort of yeah, it, it, then it often works, obviously. But no, I mean, I, I have a friend, uh, Dominic Woodfield. He's a, a, a proper ecologist, ecological consultant. And I went went for a walk with him. There's a great festival in, o in Oxfordshire called Wood Festival. And he does a sort of a walk around um, around the site. I, I run a sort of mini TED talk called the Kindling Tent, uh, which is which is great fun. Uh, and um, and it's like a, yeah, these TED talks, but without any of the sort of polish. Uh, anyway, so his walks around, I went on one once and he said, OK, fine. How many different species of grass can you see in this field? And I'm looking at a field of grass. And and he bent down, he picked out nine different species of grass. And it's just like that level of absolute knowledge and skill. I, I, I just I'm left. I'm left terribly humbled by uh, hedgehogs. I've got that sorted. But basically, that's it. Steve Jones, the uh, uh, um, geneticist, is yep. similar on snails. Snails. His, yes. his, his, when because he, he does this incredible thing when you walk with him, which is that you don't notice until the end of the walk that he has filled his pocket with snail shells because he moves at a special speed, a speed which is in some way impossible for you to track during conversation. And you find out, and he will, of course, tell you all of these different things about each pattern on the shell and what it actually, actually means. And I, I love that kind of specialism. It, 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 the, um, it really is the beginning of a sort of revolutionary change, how we can interact with nature, because as Stephen Jay Gould, wonderfully said we will not fight to save what we do not love uh, and i think it's really instructive to realize that we are encouraged through social media to like stuff so i actually um i wrote an entire rant about this about being lulled by liking yeah you know, we're encouraged just to like something rather than committing wholeheartedly to doing something about it mm -hmm. it's like oh yes i liked that uh, article that was saying about the bad things so i've done my caring about it and now i shall just pop that over there and get on with my day yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, though also I have to say I did write this ranting went on into another bit about how awful clicktivism was and how you, you, you've done your bit of activism because you've clicked on a button. And then I then I got asked to launch a petition to help hedgehogs with change.org, uh, uh, which is currently now at uh, 961,000 and, and, and oh, you know, it's a million signatures. Uh, so, so, yeah, www.change.org slash save our hedgehogs, you know, become the millionth signer upper of this thing and you will be my best buddy forever. Uh, but say, it's, uh, if, if all I... of your activism around hedgehogs involved, if all of your activism around hedgehogs could be uh, started and finished with that petition, it would be clicktivism. But it's not. That's just one part of all of the incredible work that you're doing. So I think it's perfectly fine to be raging about it and to also be seeing what you can get from it as well. Well, <laughs> I, I do think there is that thing, which is someone who clicks on that as you said Josie are they will they be doing that instead of an action that they were going to do and I think that's highly unlikely I think the people who are going to also take other actions are still going to take them some of the other people who may well not but are interested in the subject will click on that and and it's not as you say it's not an either or it is just it's another way of trying to kind of heighten some form of awareness and within that even if it's only one percent of those people who would never have taken action before who by pressing on that you know that that one percent as you said it nearly a million that one percent is a big number mm -hmm. that is a good and if they go oh actually i've clicked on that and now i want to find out more then that's been worth it that's ten thousand people mm -hmm. I wanted to, because one of the first things you told me about hedgehogs, which I found fascinating, is I think you're right. Hedgehogs and toads, two of your favourites, neither have a, a fight or flight response. Yep, they're both they're both freeze when they've got a um, a moment of of, of fear. Uh, and I mean, with the the best will in the world, I mean, you, when a hedgehog first sees me, it's not going to go, "Whoa, it's him." Uh, they're gonna they're gonna frown. The first thing a hedgehog does is frown. So um, I have, I mean, this isn't going to help people listening, but. For you, I have here my, my tame hedgehog. Um, I, I, for the uh, evidence uh, before the witnesses is, is a, a stuffed hedgehog. And uh, as you can see, a stuffed hedgehog uh, is like a happy hedgehog. All the spines are lying flat. Uh, but when a hedgehog gets unhappy, uh, uh, the, the frown muscle, which runs all the way from above its nose down to its tail, the frown muscle is contracted and the spines go all jaggly and um, and they uh, then then that covering it over their eyes and then eventually they will roll into a ball so they've developed they've evolved this fantastic uh, solution to most predators and similarly a toad uh, um, is covered in a, a sort of pharmaceutical factory of nasty toxins and <laughs> um, and rather than rolling into a ball it just all it does if you pick up a, the difference between a toad and a frog is down to attitude and you pick up a frog and it'll look at you and it'll go and jump away. And you pick up a toad and it'll look at you and it'll puff itself up a bit and go, well, if you think you're hard enough. <laughs> and um, and it's just down because it, it knows it's well protected, I'd say. Um. It's, it's one of the things in evolution, isn't it, which is, you know, natural selection has uh, managed to uh, tasting disgusting and creating an un unpleasant buildup of foam in the mouth. Eventually that gets round, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, hedgehogs. I mean, the hedgehog thing doesn't work for all predators, unfortunately, but um, it's pretty good for most. Uh, and so it, it's, it's, it's stuck with that. I have a question, which is recently I learned that the, the responses uh, in humans is often is the fight, flight, freeze or fawn response. There's the fawning response, which is trying to get your uh, aggressor to sort of like you and stop or trying to sort of flatter them to stop or try and ingratiate your way into their good books, that kind of thing. 
Is there anything like that in nature? Is there any animal that kind of tries to trick a predator into sort of not harming them in some way? Well, not, the, not from a predator's point of view, but if you look at uh, uh, wolves or, or African hunting dogs or any of those uh, sorts of communal species, when they meet up together, they will form. They will, you will get the sort of the subservient ones will form. They will roll onto their backs, they'll expose their necks. Uh, they will play the puppy role <coughs> um, in an attempt to, you know, to, to, I mean, partly is to uh, rebond within the group, but also sometimes it's begging for food. Um, <laughs> not sure about fawning. Uh, I mean, you, you obviously get possums and other the species which was kind of play dead um but that's a, a, a very significant version of freezing um yeah. which is i'm just i'm just not here i'm actually dead dead it's absolutely fine leave me alone um but, uh, <laughs> i feel I, you possums i feel you <laughs> so which do you feel you are fight flight fawn or freeze yeah i'm definitely playing dead at the moment it's fine <laughs> by me it's nice you get a lie down you get to close your eyes <laughs> starts getting cold after a while or very hot depending <laughs> on your uh, disposal technique um now i wanted to ask you about a, a, a quotation that i love that you told me from uh, an ornithologist you know andrew lack i think yes. it is um where uh, scientists do themselves a disservice when they deny the existence of the unquantifiable mm. now i think that is a very interesting i've, I've just been kind of doing quite a lot of research on reality you know consensus reality versus uh, our, our internal reality and i and i and i think within that world in particular the unquantifiable is 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 there and is very very hard to nail down to anything that might be you know very in a very base way kind of materialistic so i wondered how much that that where that quotation and that thought comes into your work or indeed you kind of you know your, your experience of living well, I mean, that quote was uh, um, when I was writing a book called The Beauty and the Beast, where I went and met uh, 15 different people who are a bit like me, which alarmed other people. Uh, and <laughs> these, these were people who, who had a passion for their own particular species. So you know, I met a robin expert who was Andrew Lacker, an otter expert, a moth expert, a beaver expert. And um, uh, I would say I'm a robin expert in a number of ways. Um. <laughs> uh, you probably are. Have you managed to get him to land on your hand and eat a mealworm yet? Yes, but he's very territorial. <laughs> they're vicious, aren't they? Uh, they, they, they I'm so they, sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt with something so silly. <laughs> no, no, what, no, who were the other experts that you met, please? So, no, no, there's plenty. I mean, just yeah, 15 different ones. Sparrows were, were particularly wonderful. My adder expert was quite strange and kept a baseball bat beside his uh, front door because sometimes people didn't go away. Uh, but I'm um, saying so my Robin expert, uh, um, uh, Andrew Lacken, and, and I was trying to find out whether a lot of these people were scientists. So, so Professor Dave McDonald, for example, is my fox expert, and, and um, he wrote an amazing book called Running with the Fox, which I read when I was doing my master's. And, and basically, he turned his PhD thesis into a really entertaining book, uh, all about fox behavior and ecology. And, um, I, and at one point, he turned around and said, you're just trying to get me to say I love foxes, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, that's kind of I want to see whether you'll cross that line. And with Andrew Lack, um, he, he was that's we were talking about love. We were talking about that level of, of um, relationship that you can develop with with your study animal. And that's when he was talking about this unquantifiable. And, and I'm 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 big up on the science. I love the science, but also I'm not so arrogant as to think that we've got it all sorted because it, it wasn't that long ago that we had it all sorted because we'd got this book in Latin, which the geezer and address told us what it meant. And we knew it. We absolutely knew it with all of the certainty that we now know that Brian Cox is right in every respect. 
He's a the, great actor. We believe with absolute certainty that the scientific mindset is right. <laughs> but we do it with the same amount of certainty that, that our, our ancestors believed that the biblical version of things was right. And it may be that we are right, but it's that sort of level of arrogance to assume that we've got it right. There may be stuff we don't know. And the fact that there is stuff which is unquantifiable is, is that word of warning. It's like, well, OK, there is stuff out there we can't actually put a number on yet. See, I, I would disagree with you. I wouldn't disagree with that statement, but I would disagree perhaps with the attitudes of Brian Cox and others, which is I, I don't think it is the same as, as a biblical literalism or a biblical belief, because I do think that more and more, and I think we're seeing a lot more of this in science communication as well, a lot more stuff about working out different ways that it connects to the world and connects to some sense, which in a very broad way, uh, even though I, I don't like using this word, but it, it, perhaps the quickest way of, of explaining it, some form of spirituality with connection to the stars. Talking to Stuart Clark the other day about his new book about our relationship with the sky and, and the fact that there was a point of disenchantment where it seems that scientific evidence had built out and the scientific method had within it a disenchantment. And he now feels that there is a re-enchantment of the night sky with our kind of understanding that there is. And so I, I would say that I, I agree with Andrew Lack's statement, but I don't agree that, the, you know, I, and I certainly think there are some scientists that would be entirely true of as well who are, are dismissive of it. But I also think there's another side of science which says there is this huge world which we are not able to in any way place in currently in graphs and equations and and in any way play a but you know place a boundary around them yeah, i wasn't actually saying that, that what brian cox was saying was was that it, the same as biblical literalism it was just that there is an i you know they were as certain as we are now and that it would be arrogant to assume that we've reached the end of certainty uh, and that there is a whole bunch of stuff left open for us to to explore and discover and um, um i you know uh, i'm with, with the richard dawkins perspective i'm you know 99.99 .99 an atheist because as a scientist underneath it all i can't be 100 percent because um so it, but basically brian cox also ruined it because he quoted rutherford by saying the only only science only true science is physics and all the rest is is stamp collecting and cookery and um and so it was it was just yeah, from that he moment he does like to wind you lot up <laughs> He, I mean, it's it's that interesting thing, which is the, uh, I, I mean, Carlos Frank talked about that, where where a brilliant uh, cosmologist uh, up up in Durham, where he, he said, you know, the thing is, physics is just very easy. It's really easy because you know you just find these laws, and then it turns out that's how matter is. He's, you know, he said, where's where's biology? Ah, oh, that's you know, and and that's an interest, that interesting combative, and I think very often it's a jokely, hopefully jokely kind of uh, combative thing. Uh, but the difference where you know someone like Adam Rutherford will will go to physicists and say you don't even have uh, your you know the one unifying theory, whereas you you have the unified theory of evolution by natural selection. But within that, then being able to define anything in in, in one simple route gets harder and harder because l life with its unified theory then also has an incredible level of complexity. Whereas Carlos Frank feels it goes eventually we just have those three equations, but the rest of things to understand when they get complex that's when it gets really tricky. So I had a moment I was doing a, a gig with you, but you you weren't there because I think you had better things to do. You were late um, in 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 London Conway Hall, and um, uh, the, the the technology had stopped working. Um, and I'd sort of come on, and I, I, Josie, you met me once doing my first ever stand-up gig ever. I remember. Yeah, and I was, I should, should point out, I don't do this sort of thing normally, and um, and I was so scared. I was so, 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 so scared. Mm. 
And I remember distinctly Robin saying to me, uh, you say, how you I said, I feel so tired, never doing this again, ever, ever. My midlife <laughs> is over, I've got the tattoo, I've done the dancing and I've done the stand-up comedy. Now I'm gonna grow up. And, um, but Robin, you said, when you come off the stage, the first thing you're gonna do is ask if you can do it again. I know, I'm not, <laughs> I did, I was absolutely buzzing. I, yeah. <laughs> so I was doing this thing in, in Conway Hall and um, it got to this moment, Technology wasn't working, and and I just I discovered very swiftly that the room was full of physicists because I then started on this this sort of uh, sort of the minor rant about well, it was probably a physicist who put this lot together, and and they just had the easy life because as an ecologist you're out in the pouring rain at four o'clock in the morning pushing around in the undergrowth, kneeling in all sorts of feces of various species and finding your hedgehog and weighing your hedgehog and then getting back to your caravan and you are exhausted and you are filthy and you are wet and you've got a data point and you get no funding and you're surviving on tins of lentil soup. And then you've got the physicists who sit behind a machine that's an engineer built, not a physicist, and they press a button on a computer that an engineer built and the machine goes whoosh and they go, Ooh, and you go, ooh, still don't know where 94% of the universe is. And can I have some more money, please? I mean, if you're a hardcore scientist, you do ecology. Do astrophysics if you're a lightweight. That's how entomologists feel as well. They're like, we have so many more wasps to discover and we can't get the money for the wasps and you're getting more money for space. Come on, there's wasps on the ground. And then the botanists say, and we haven't got any money for the plants that the wasps are laying their eggs on for the, yeah, 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 yes, it is. Um, and then the chemists say, it's always between physics and biology, isn't it? Maybe <laughs> perhaps we might help out here a little bit as well in terms of your conflicts. Um, your new book is, uh, is, is, is as I said, it's, it's, it's lovely. It's a really delightful, uh, just, um, I, I, I showed it to my dad. And uh, in fact, the day that we found a, a hedgehog in the garden, we were talking about this the other day. I don't know if you've had any more research since, since then, which was near the beginning of lockdown. People were observing hedgehogs more and we were wondering various things, which is one, people were in, uh, you know, were wandering outside uh, more than they normally would be. Were walking, were going into the countryside, uh, if they had a garden, going into their garden. Uh, was it that? Was it the fact there were fewer cars? Do we know anything about changes of hedgehog population from uh, lockdown? Um, lockdown. It's too soon. I mean, the, 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 the mating that took place in spring to produce the babies in summer, uh, m you know, m most of whom will die before next spring, um, um, just because that is the way of, of the hedgehog's world, then we'll get an idea whether there's been a boost to hedgehog numbers. Uh, but, but principally, it's been down to the fact that people have spent more time moving more slowly, being more in their gardens, taking deliberate time out into the wild because they've given an hour out uh, during lockdown and they would use it um, where, where, when they're fortunate enough to be able to. And that's where the increased observations will have given you that sighting. Um, but no, that's an indicator of the hedgehogs that are already there, not that there are more. They unfortunately don't blossom quite as quickly uh, as we would like them to. Mm. Well, uh, I highly recommend Hugh Warwick's uh, latest book. On as I said, now finally he's going to move on from hedgehogs. It's a terrifying moment, but the next one's going to be Beavers. But uh, <laughs> hedgehogs for the for the time being. I forget the name of the publisher now. It's a publisher I hadn't come across before. They've done a few uh, natural history books, haven't they? It's graphic, and the thing about graphic, graphic. is that the, the books. I mean, the books are, are very they're very pocketable, very sort of um, uh, uh, gifty style, uh, but they're properly written. And so, I mean, you know, they've done 
hares and they've done red squirrels and they've done foxes and um and so it, it's they're just a really it's a really nice way of doing it and i i've enjoyed doing it enormously um also if you buy them directly from Grafeg as opposed to other people who don't pay their tax uh Grafeg are giving a pound to the british hedgehog preservation society which is a nice thing to do um and um, you can track me down on the internet and i'm, I'm happy uh, in re return of a, a self uh, addressed envelope i shall send you a, an inscribed book plate uh complete with cute little hedgehogs on it and messages of, of love and adoration so there we go the message today is also is, is not merely buy this book but uh also uh if you see any otter poo uh just for hugh make sure you just have a little sniff as well because uh What's it? Jasmine and Earl Grey, isn't it? You oh, say comes absolutely. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's one of those things that, that you begin to wonder. It's a bit like you know, the apprentice being told to go down to the store to, to, to buy some elbow grease or whatever. You, you do wonder whether these more experienced ecologists are just winding you up. Um, but I mean, do you, do you have time? I could just tell you a little otter poo. Yeah, go on. OK, so I, Miriam Darlington, uh, a wonderful poet and um, author, wrote a book all about otters. And she was my otter expert for The Beauty and the Beast. And uh, she said, we're never going to see an otter because it's daytime. We're out in Devon looking for, for otters. But he said, what we're going to do, we're going to find uh, we're going to find some otter poo because it smells so wonderful. And um, I was suspicious because the otter is not that distinctly unrelated to the skunk. Um, and so we went out. We didn't find any. But about uh, about two weeks later, I got a small jiffy bag arrived through the post huh. um, and inside a little cardboard box, like a jewellery box. And on it, she'd drawn this little picture of an otter with a very sort of Alice in Wonderland sniff me message. And uh, inside that, lots of cotton wool and a small plastic bag filled with dried, uh, powdery, what I can only presume is otter feces. And I'm confronted with that moment of do I sniff the sprint? Um, you know, this is it, it, because it's an experiential book. I felt I ought to, but also it could be really horrible. And so the learning from this, and, and what I'm very happy to share is if somebody sends you a small uh, um, plastic bag full of dried powdery feces through the post, do not hold it to your nose and take a great big sniff because you will spend the next 15 minutes unable to see and sneezing otter poo out of your head. Um, and eventually you will get that moment to do the sort of wafty wafty thing as if it was a glass of wine and it truly is smells delightful and wonderful and I recommend it to you. Go sniff otter spring. <laughs> this is an ex excellent piece of uh, advice. There's a similar thing, by the way, about if anyone ever sends you one of the original uh, chimpanzee masks used in Planet of the Apes, don't immediately place it on your head because the uh, rubber will, unfortunately, there will have been a level of atrophy uh, in the rubber and uh, it will go up your nose and you may well die of suffocation. So there's Otapoo and also the uh, latex masks from Planet of the Apes, both of them. Be careful. That's what we're saying. <laughs> Thank um, you so much for talking to us. It's it's lovely to talk to you. It was not much about hedgehogs, though. Anyway, I suppose that's the Doesn't way of it. Doesn't matter, does it? That's we mentioned the oh, Yeah, the hedgehog's all in the books. If you'd said too much about hedgehogs, people go, I think you've told us everything. There can't be more than that. Well, there is. Um, so thank you very much, Hugh Warwick. Thank you very much, uh, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much for everyone who supports us uh, for our Patreon. Patreon people, by the way, I'll just mention we've got a new podcast that's going to start soon, uh, which I believe is probably going to have the title The Uncanny Hour and uh, various different subjects, including Penders Fen and uh, Hawkwind and David Cronenberg's The Brood and guests, including uh, Stuart Lee and uh, Alan Moore and uh, Sarah Morgan and Stephen Morris from New Order. Uh, and that's going to be up very very soon for uh, all of our patreon uh, supporters so thanks very much josie what are you up to now uh, i have to do some writing for a uh, radio show that i'm recording over zoom oh when's this radio show coming out oh i don't know 
Oh, this is very exciting. And uh, and Hugh, as he said, if you, you can get a book plate, send a, a stamp dress envelope and go to Graphic because uh, obviously, as he said, uh, they are donating money as well, as well as well as paying their taxes. My God, there's just it's just giving after giving after giving, isn't it? Uh, thanks very much to our producer, Trent Burton. And uh, we'll see you another book shambles. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. And An Uncanny Hour is out now. I know Robin said it would be out soon, but we recorded this a couple of weeks ago, so it is out now. An Uncanny Hour, our new documentary podcast series, out exclusively for Patreons. Not just a series of conversations. These are proper kind of radio documentaries with... Lots of different guests and interviews and discussion in each episode. The first one that's out now is about Dead of Night, the portmanteau horror classic. The next episode, which will be out next Saturday, looks at the sci-fi rock band Hawkwind in the 70s. First episode features uh, Joanna Neary and Reese Shearsmith and Andy Nyman, amongst others, and this upcoming second episode has uh, Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and Stacia Blake so we hope you'll sign up to Patreon and enjoy that series that is available to Patreon supporters of both this the Book Shambles podcast and also the Cosmic Shambles network don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already I don't know how you'll be listening to this if you're not maybe you manually type it in each week which would be strange but you know, each their own. Uh, if you go to Apple Podcasts, you can rate five stars and leave a review as well. That really helps us out if you've not done that already. Cosmicshambles.com for all the information about the Nine Lessons 24-hour show. Some new guests to announce very soon. 50 of them have already been announced. Like Brian Cox and Chris Hadfield and Josie and Helen Chesky and Sharon D. Clark and lots of others. That's it for now. Have a great week, stay safe, and we will see you all soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.